Morning, everyone. Would you join me in a short prayer before I begin? Father, grant us today a glimpse into your heart and the changes you want to see as we contemplate the future of your world and the way you want us to live in it. Amen. Well, following on from uh, Ian's excellent sermon series which helped us ride the corona coaster, I thought it might be useful to explore how the world might change when the pandemic ends and what our roles as Christians within it should be. Will things revert to the way they were before or will the world never be quite the same as many are predicting? I'm somewhat wary of the phrase never again. Um, the League of Nations was formed after World War I to avoid such slaughter ever happening again. And yet, only 25 years later, the United Nations was formed likewise after World War II. And yet the world is still torn apart by conflict and we see dictators growing in power, in brazenness, in various countries of the world. But rather than look perhaps frustratingly and impotently on at these self-styled strongmen and other politicians making a mess of things, it's better, I think, for us to look at the lessons we can learn from Jesus as he approaches the climax of his ministry on earth. And it was no coincidence, I think, that I was reading in Jeremiah 7 and in Matthew 21 on the day Ian asked Brian and I to preach at this and the next two services. And so I hope you'll see that both of today's readings have much to teach us about our world today and how our own attitudes and behaviour need to be brought in line with our loving Father's heart if we are to see the world change for the better. Radical change is indeed needed, but the scary thing that I've discovered is that it starts with us. (laughs) We are called to take the first step. But it's not a journey into the total unknown. Jesus, our shepherd and our captain, goes ahead of us. So let's follow him now as he steps into the temple. It's the day after he entered Jerusalem in triumph. So he's at the height of his earthly power and popularity. And in verse 12 we see he immediately sets about cleansing the temple, casting out all those selling and buying and overturning the tables of the money changers and the benches of the dove sellers. And it was this picture of Jesus' exercise of his righteous anger that graphically described for me the sort of radical change many hope will result from the COVID-19 pandemic. An overturning, a rethink of the way we live, the resources we use and how we treat each other. But sadly, I fear, many believe that humanity can do this all on our own. All we need 
is a different political party, a new president, or a different government in power. But Jesus had already cleaned up the temple court before, at the beginning of his ministry, as recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 2. There, he made a whip to help drive out all those he accused of turning his father's house into a market. Clearly, people soon reverted to their old ways, business as usual. So Jesus had to cleanse the temple a second time. And that's so often the way with humankind, isn't it? We tend not to learn from history, or rather, we prefer to forget uncomfortable truths and thus condemn ourselves to keep on repeating mistakes from the past. How to break that vicious circle to bring about the radical change so many hope for. The first step is to find the root of the problem, which is neatly summarised by Pope Benedict in the following quotes from two of his addresses. One to his clergy, and the second when he spoke to the German government, the Bundestag, in Berlin in 2011. He said this, he pointed out that the misuse of creation begins when we no longer recognise any higher instance than ourselves, when we see nothing else but ourselves. The social environment, he said, has also suffered damage due to the same evil. The notion that there are no indisputable truths to guide our lives, and hence human freedom is limitless. So our mission as Christians, I think, is to introduce the world to the person who embodies truth itself. And without sounding trite, we know, don't we, that Jesus is the ultimate answer to all the world's problems. But how do we get that message over to a world that appears ever more indifferent and even hostile to our faith? Let's see how Jesus went about radical change in our gospel reading. The first point to bear in mind was that the scene is set in the court of the Gentiles, the larger outer part of the temple, open to non-Jews, open to everyone. Now, cattle and doves were needed for the required sacrifices at the time, as was Jewish coin for the temple tax. So a money exchange service was available for those who came from abroad. The problem was caused by the fact that the temple authorities had allowed these commercial services to get out of hand, turning God's holy temple effectively into a stockyard and a market. In dealing with the issue, Jesus was not at all gentle. He threw out the buyers and the sellers and overturned the tables 
In Greek, the trapezas, or in Latin, the bancus, from which we derive our banks of today, those little tables of the money changers, he turned them over, and the benches of the dove sellers. Might that ring any bells? Authorities letting the financial world get out of hand. Derivatives, which no one really understood. Mortgages in the US, peddled to ninjas, people with no income and no jobs, who couldn't possibly afford what they were being encouraged to buy by the mortgage brokers, who were just interested in getting their commissions. And it wasn't just in the US. Building societies freed to do what it didn't say on the tin. All this, of course, with a liberal dose of greed, led to the 2009 financial crisis, an overturning, almost, of the system, meltdown being prevented only by the concerted action from central banks. Back to the temple. Notice that Jesus met little resistance, unlike the first time when the authorities had asked for a miraculous sign to prove his authority to do all this. Back then, John 2.17, the disciples looking on remembered the scripture from Psalm 17. Zeal for your house will consume me. In contrast to the zeal of the authorities and their supporters to make money from the temple, Jesus was passionate about keeping his father's house holy. So the second time, Jesus' zeal met with no opposition. It's almost as if everyone realised deep down that the way they were allowing the temple court to be abused was wrong. And of course, it wasn't just the temple authorities. They condoned it. But everyone there, buying and selling and so on, was contributing. So even though Jesus didn't meet with any opposition, he explains why he's taking such drastic action, quoting Isaiah 56, 7. My house will be called a house of prayer. Now Matthew, because he's writing for a Jewish audience, omits the next phrase because he knew that they would all know it. But Isaiah adds for all nations, which is important for us today. So the full quote is, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But Jesus continues with a quote from Jeremiah, our our reading this morning, you are making it a den of robbers. I'm not sure that Jesus was necessarily implying that robbery was actually taking place in the temple. Rather, I think the sense of Jeremiah 7 is that the wicked committed all kinds of crimes outside the temple and yet believed that as long as they had the temple, which was the place where God promised to dwell among his people, they'd be insulated in some way from any of the consequences. 
Does that ring any bells with attitudes today? If some do feel free to do whatever they want, it's convenient for them to deny the existence of a higher power that holds them responsible for any poor decisions they make. Some churchgoers, even, may behave in a parallel way. I've heard of men who continually abuse their wives, coming to church for absolution, or tame priests in mafia-controlled areas of Italy, repeatedly salving the consciences of their wicked flock. Fortunately, we don't have to judge these difficult and complex situations because we can rely on the perfect judge, Jeremiah 7, 11. But I have been watching, declares the Lord. No one's going to get away with anything because I have been watching, declares the Lord. So in clearing the temple, Jesus, even though he wasn't challenged, communicated and explained his rationale clearly. No one was in any doubt why he was doing this. He also carried on his work, healing the sick, his day job, you might almost say, because having just used his divine authority in righteous anger against those trashing the holiness of the temple, he now exercises his divine compassion toward those in need, the blind and the lame, who did not at the time benefit from a welfare state. Their only refuge was the temple, where they relied upon the mercy of folk to look after them. And so Jesus healed them. And this, amid the chaos of the scene, imagine it, he's just locked down (laughs) the businesses which are going on in the temple. So you've got people rushing around after their livestock, trying to catch their doves, picking up coins from the floor. And quietly, here come the blind and the lame, representing all in need, who realise they have nowhere else to go, and who are at the opposite end of the scale from those humanists who think that they can solve their own problems. No, these folk have long since put aside their pride and now come begging for mercy. They recognise their need of healing and flock to Jesus, who meets this need. Now his healings, miracles all of course, in verse 15, caused the young boys who would be 12 and over, who were in the temple uh, to celebrate their first Passover, as was their duty, and as Jesus had done when uh, he was their age, to shout, Hosanna! to the son of David. Now they'd seen their elders, their parents, do this the day before as Jesus had made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So their shouting added to the noise level and finally prompted the chief priests and teachers of the law to approach Jesus with an indirect appeal, they were such cowards, to stop the disorder. Do you hear, 
what these children are saying, they asked him. Do we catch the irony here? The authorities condoned the use of the temple as a market, and they were now complaining to Jesus, whose miracles had prompted the children to praise him. So Jesus answered, yes, almost saying, I hear and approve, quoting Psalm 8, out of the mouths of children and infants you have ordained praise. You know, if the adults will not respond, God will raise up children to praise him. It's the same idea, isn't it, as um, elsewhere in the Bible that says, you know, the very stones will cry out if, if you lot don't recognize what's going on here and worship the Lord. So again, our lesson here is that scripture is used to silence the opposition. That's what Jesus did. He used scripture to silence these authorities. Another lesson from this fast-moving account, Jesus leaves for Bethany outside the city. He knew the authorities were after him inside the city, and even though, of course, he could rely on his father to protect him, he was not reckless and acted prudently. Contrast the wicked Israelites who thought they could act with impunity because they had the temple. Moving on, early next morning, verse 18, no time for breakfast. Jesus was hungry, saw a fig tree by the road. Nothing in the Bible is superfluous. By the road, what do we learn from that? This fig tree didn't have an owner. So Jesus respected private property. He didn't scrump. He didn't even consider scrumping. He saw this fig tree. It was in full leaf, a promise of fruit. But there was none. Leaves only. Another picture, perhaps, of falsehood. The outer appearance masking the inner empty truth. Perhaps reminding us of the need to follow through on change, to walk our talk, produce fruit unto repentance, as John the Baptist commanded the Pharisees. A sobering warning to all who don't. We may wither and never produce fruit again. The fig tree withered at Jesus' rebuke. This shocked the disciples who asked, how did you do that? And Jesus answers, beginning with the solemn confirmation of veracity that he often used, the Greek word amen. Truly, I say to you, if you have continuous tense faith, if you have and keep having faith and do not doubt, not only will you be able to wither unproductive fruit trees, you will be empowered to say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. They were on the Mount of Olives, from which you can easily look down to the Dead Sea. It's about 18 miles to the east. The Mount of Olives is about 2,500 feet above sea level. The Dead Sea is 1,400 feet below sea level. So you can easily 
see the Dead Sea from the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is telling them, you can move this mountain and say, go into the sea. What an awesome example and encouragement to all of us that with faith and the courage and conviction to not doubt, easier said than done, I know, but with that courage and conviction to not doubt, we can move mountains and thus embrace the radical change Jesus brings. But it starts with each of us individually and then through worship and prayer fans out into our community and from there into the world. And finally, change begins with obedience, which we're going to look at in more detail in a couple of weeks. But this is the point, very briefly, of the second part of our reading from Matthew 21 about the two sons being asked to work in their father's vineyard today. He says, will you work today? The time is now. And if we don't step up, Jesus continues, others will take our place. Change, of course, is scary. But we're encouraged, I hope, today to face the fear, to overcome it, and to follow our shepherd who wants to lead us on to better and greater things for our good, to the benefit of the world, and for God's glory. Amen.